This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we need to always make sure that we are in tune with the Lord in fellowship. We do that by making sure that we are we have confessed any known sin. If it's unknown or forgotten, we obviously can't confess it, but 1 John 1, 9 covers everything. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At the instant that we admit, acknowledge our sins to God, He forgives us because of what Christ did on the cross. The issue is not our feelings, it's not remorse, it's not feeling sorry for our sins, it's not any other human factor, same as in salvation. It is simply that we recognize our sin and God instantly forgives us and forgets. That's grace. It's not dependent on who we are or what we do, but totally dependent upon what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that there is nothing in us that renders us uh, attractive to you, that we were born sinners, at enmity with you, obnoxious to you, that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But you provided a perfect salvation that completely paid for every sin, past, present, and future, so that the only issue in our life is Jesus Christ. And that determines salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. Now, Father, along with that salvation, you have given us a remarkable spiritual life. This is what the writer of the Hebrews means when he says, How shall we neglect so great a salvation? Father, as we continue our study of the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things and to recognize how uh, vast and how magnificent and how complex our salvation is and that it could not be dependent in any way upon who we are or what we do, but you provided this magnificent salvation for us. We pray that you would challenge us as we understand these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Last week we looked at the or concluded the six trials of Jesus Christ. He was tried. There were three trials or hearings before the Jewish religious authorities, and then there were three trials before the Roman or uh, civil authorities, uh, two before Pilate. Uh, sandwiched in between was a 
hearing or trial before Herod Agrippa, the Tetrarch of Galilee, who was in Jerusalem at the time. When Jesus finally came back to Pilate, we saw that Pilate, in an attempt to compromise with the crowds in order to somehow just cast them a bone, somehow try to convince them that, that uh, they should not crucify Jesus, he said, well, I will punish him. He had already declared him to be not guilty four times. When you add in Herod's announcement that Jesus was innocent, there were at least five declarations of Jesus' innocence. And yet, despite the fact that Pilate was convinced that Jesus was innocent, he said, I will punish him. And we saw that this was covered in John 19, 2 and 3, where Jesus was given over to the Roman soldiers. They took him back inside the praetorium, and there they proceeded to torture him. Not to the degree that they would, would torture him later, just previous to the crucifixion, but that they there stripped him down, tied him to a stake, and began to whip him. Now, I looked at the fact that, that prior to crucifixion, it was the standard operating procedure of Roman soldiers to, in a very uh, sadistic manner, to torture their victims. And one of the things they would do is they would take a flagellum, which was a short-handled whip that had uh, anywhere from six to ten strands of leather attached to it, and woven into that leather were bits of bone or, or stone, rock, uh, whatever they could find hard that would lacerate the flesh. And they would normally strap down a victim. They would take a, have a stake a wooden post, they would wrap his arms around, pull it tight so that you'd stretch the skin across the back, pull those muscles tight, and then they would begin to methodically uh, beat the prisoner and whip them to the point that they would uh, be almost dead. In fact, many who were condemned to crucifixion died just from the flagellation that took place preceding that. Now, we know from what the Scriptures indicate is that Pilate did not intend to kill our Lord with that first beating. So there was an initial beating. Then they brought him out again, a rather pathetic-looking uh, figure. He, by this time, he's covered with blood. He's been beaten. They uh, mashed the crown of thorns upon his head. And they, Pilate brings him out before the crowd and says, Behold the man. Then, once again, he tries to convince the crowd to let Jesus go. He says, I find no fault in him. He takes his seat upon the uh, Bema seat, the judgment seat, outside the praetorium on the pavement there, and he finally pronounces judgment on Jesus there in John uh, 19:16, and go ahead, crucify him. Then he washes his hands, according to Matthew, and he is given over to the Jewish soldiers where, once again, this time he is severely beaten in comparison to what was already a serious whipping. Uh, what would usually take place is that with half a dozen lashes of the whip, the skin is stripped off the back, the muscles are laid bare, and then they would systematically seek to uh, remove the musculature from the back to the point where the large arteries and even the major internal organs were exposed. You can see why many people died just as a result of this beating. So our Lord went through incredible physical suffering prior to the cross. Then he went to the cross, as we will see when we get into our analysis of the hour-by-hour structure of the crucifixion, 
that he went to the cross at approximately 9 o'clock in the morning, according to the uh, Gospel of Mark. But it was not until noon. So he hangs there on the cross for three hours prior to uh, the sky being darkened. And then the sky is darkened at noon, and from noon to three when the sky is darkening, it is at that point in time that Jesus is judged for the sins of the world. It is at that point that he finally screams out in agony towards the end of that three-hour period, Father, Father, why have you, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that point we understand that there is something that has never occurred before in time or eternity, that there is a judicial separation between God the Son and God the Father, that ontologically he is still united to the Trinity. How this takes place we cannot explain. We just don't have the vocabulary. He is still united. He is still one with God. He is still in complete unity, but judicially the sins of the world are poured out upon him. The question comes up, what then exactly If that is the period of judgment, what is going on? What is the purpose of the physical suffering of Christ? And I began to cover that last time, had some questions afterwards, and I knew as soon as I got into it last time that I would have to uh, come back and break it down into a nice little point-by-point exposition of the doctrine of the physical sufferings of Jesus Christ on the cross and the exact role that they that they play. So we come now to look at the doctrine of the physical sufferings of Jesus Christ on the cross. Why is it that Jesus had to go through such agonizing torture, torment, such incredible pain that you and I can never imagine unless of course we have uh, perhaps been one of those unfortunate who have been prisoners of war or something along those lines where we have gone through this kind of torture and suffering, Uh, very few human beings ever approximate the kind of adversity, the misery, the temptation. If you think about it in terms of the humanity of Christ and the temptation to get down off the cross, to avoid all of this misery, all of the sorrow, all of the rejection, all of the that that goes with it, both psychological torture. Here he loves his nation, loves the people. Just looking at it from the side of Christ's humanity, he came to his own and his own received him not, John tells us in the first chapter. And he goes through rejection, rejection the like of which you and I never experience and never will experience. He goes through physical sufferings. And yet the, the question is, what role does all of this play in the overall package of what Christ did on the cross and the work of Christ. So we come especially to the passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, We are healed. How exactly does this relate to an understanding that Jesus Christ's death on the cross, the penalty that he paid for us, was spiritual 
and spiritual death as opposed to his physical death. We have to understand the distinction. It is, first of all, we must understand that it's a total package and there are two dimensions to that whole package. There is a physical dimension and a spiritual dimension. So point number one, we have to recognize that Christ died two deaths on the cross. Jesus Christ died two deaths on the cross. How do we know that? We'll look down at Isaiah 53, verse 9. There we read, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The interesting thing is that when you... Look at the word for death here in Isaiah 53.9. It is the Hebrew word mot. Looks like this in the Hebrew. M-O-T-H. That's sort of a soft T. And it refers to death. But the interesting thing here is that this is a plural noun. It is not a singular noun. It refers to deaths. Now, there is clearly in Hebrew the possibility that a plural noun can refer to something as intense and is referred to as a plural of intensity. And so we have to ask, well, is this talking about two deaths or is this talking about a plural of just a plural of intensity? So at that point, we have to see if there's any other places in Scripture that refer to Christ's death on the cross with a plural noun. And indeed, we do find that. It is in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul is talking about what happens at the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation. And he says, having been buried with him in baptism. Always remember that baptism does not necessarily mean water. One of the big problems we had with translation when we were in uh, Kazakhstan and I was teaching the pastors there was in the Kazakh translation of the Bible, which is a very poor translation. The, uh, apparently the translator did not understand much about doctrine at all. And every time he came to the word baptism, he translated it washing with water. Now we know that there are eight different baptisms in the scripture and that at least five of those are dry baptisms. They do not involve water. And so when you see somebody trying to understand a verse, it says washing with water by fire. It's obviously very confusing to them, so they just throw up their hands and chalk that up to the inscrutability of Scripture. But that's the inscrutability of a lousy translator. So this is not talking about water baptism. Baptism, the significance of the word baptism is identification. It always represents identifying one person with something else or an object with something. For example, in the ancient world, the Greek soldiers would take a a new recruit after he finished boot camp, would then take his spear and he would dip it into a bucket of pig's blood. And that was they used the word baptism because it was now identifying his weapon with blood. He was preparing to go to battle. So there's the identification significance. And this is what spirit, spirit 
baptism, or baptism by means of the Holy Spirit is, according to Romans 6, uh, 3, and 4, it is identification with Christ. At the instant of our salvation, we are identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is the basis for our, our freedom from the sin nature. That's the foundation to the entire spiritual life, as Paul begins to explain it in Romans 6 through 8. So Paul is explaining the same concept again in Colossians 2, having been buried with him by means of baptism, and plus the uh, instrumental case there indicates means, we're buried with him by means of baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. That's the same analogy used in Romans 6, that with our identification with Christ on the cross, we are identified with his resurrection so that we are raised to a new quality of life, which is the new spiritual life of the church age. He says, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And there we have an interesting word. It is the Greek word nekros in the plural. Raised him from the deaths. From the deaths. And it's interesting because, first of all, nekros is almost always used to refer to physical death in the scriptures, whereas thanatos, the other Greek word for death, is generally reserved for spiritual death, though that's not a hard and fast rule. So here the word nekros is used, and it is indicating that there is something of more than just one death here. Now, in order to understand the two deaths, the plurality of deaths that Christ suffered on the cross, we have to go back and understand the penalty for sin. Now, in order to do this, we have to go back into the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. So turn with me in your Bibles to the second chapter of Genesis, verse 17. We're answering the question, what is the penalty for sin? Now, I want to make sure that you notice the terminology here. It's very important to distinguish penalty from consequences. Penalty refers to a judgmental punishment, the announcement of a judicial sentence from the Supreme Court of Heaven. That is different from the consequences. Look at verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Then verse 17, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. It's a command. It wasn't an option. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Now, just a couple of observations on the text. It states that, uses the word for there, that's the Hebrew preposition key, which I think has a strong causal sense, and he is giving the reason for the mandate. He says, because in the day, not 10 years later, 20 years later, 900 years later. Remember, Adam lived to be 930. He says, in the day that you eat from it, something is going to happen. He says, you shall surely die. Now, in the Hebrew... We have a fascinating construction here that has been mistranslated by some. 
Now, I taught this for years until I got into a lot of Hebrew and realized the error of my ways. And I know that some of you have been taught this. And every now and then I have to take a little time and go back and and, uh, rearrange your thinking to make sure you understand why I say what I say. In the Hebrew, you have a a way of expressing verbal action that uses your, your main verb, which is usually in one of the main stems. Hebrew has about eight or nine different stems, depending on who you're reading. And these each indicate different actions. The cal stem is the stem indicating re- reality or normal action. The nifal, and it's an active voice. Nifal expresses passive. You have hifal, hofals, hithphiels, polals, pilals, pilpals, all kinds of different stems. And uh, you have your main verb in either perfect or imperfect form. That is then followed by a verb that is an infinitive absolute. So you have two verbs there. Now what happened was somewhere along the line, somebody came along and said, well, if you have two verbs, there must be two actions. And so they translated the verb this way. Dying, you will die. Now, a lot of us have heard this translation and the way it's explained is that this first dying refers to spiritual death. Second dying refers to physical death. And so there are therefore two deaths mentioned here in Genesis 2.17. Now the question is, is that a valid translation? Now here we're going to get a little technical, so I don't want to lose too many of you. But some of you have been taught the wrong thing, and since the devil is in the details, we have to look at a few details in order to correctly understand what's going on here. First of all, I think it's a bad translation even in the English because dying is either a participle or a gerund, and this indicates process. And if that were spiritual death, it would be make spiritual death a process culminating in physical death. Well, that just doesn't make sense. That's not how it's interpreted anyway, so it's a contradiction in terms. So even the, the English concept there is somehow wrong. But the meaning of any kind of, of, uh, of structure is always determined by usage. For those of you who don't know this, the meaning of a word is not determined by going to the dictionary and saying, well, the dictionary says this word means X, Y, and Z. The reason the dictionary says it means X, Y, and Z is because the writer of a dictionary has analyzed how a word is used among various speakers. And how a word is used determines its meaning, and now he categorizes and classifies the meaning of that word. A dictionary is therefore not an absolute standard, but is simply a relative measure of how people use terms. That's why dictionaries are redone every so, ever so often is because meanings of words change, slang, some words are lost, some words are gained, and other words change meaning. So usage determines how this how this relates. So we need to look at this kind of structure, and I'm just going to run you through a number of verses to show you, what, to see if a dying you will die type of translation would even make sense in these structures. Genesis 18, verse 10. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. Now there's that phrase, surely return, translates a perfect verb plus a Infinitive absolute. Does that make sense to translate that returning, I will return? 
Now, the Hebrew grammars all indicate that this kind of construction indicates emphasis or certainty. And that's really what, what God is saying there. I will definitely, you can count on it. It's not a process. There aren't two returns. There's only one return, and it's emphatic. Genesis 19.9, but they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Well, that phrase, acting like a judge, uh, translates a double verb like this again, and it is not the idea of two acts of judging, judging he judges, but it is talking about the definiteness, the certainty of his action. He is definitely acting this way, uh, like a judge, and then it goes on and says other things. Genesis 15, 13. God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. This is in the part of the Abrahamic covenant and is a prophecy of the uh, uh, 400 years of Jewish slavery in Egypt. But he says, Know for certain. There's our phrase again. It's a cow perfect plus a cow infinitive absolute. Now, would that be two types of knowledge or one type of knowledge? Indicating certainty. No, for sure. No, with certainty. Now, the interesting thing is the serpent in the temptation of the woman in verse 4 negativizes the same phrase that we have in verse 16. The serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. Now, if we take that phrase, dying you will die, and negativize it, is that not dying you will not die? Come on, laugh a little. That's a double negative, which would make it a positive. That wouldn't make sense. So we have all kinds of problems here. Now, there's a couple of other verses that I'll just run you through. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die. Same exact phrase that we have in Genesis 2.17. Cal, perfect, plus a cal infinitive uh, absolute. Is that talking about two kinds of death? Dying, she will die? No. It's talking about the certainty of her death. You see the same thing in uh, Isaiah, I mean Genesis 26:11. Abimelech charged all the people, saying, "He who touches this man or his wife, talking about Abraham and Sarah, will surely be put to death." He's not talking about two deaths. Judges 13:22. Manoah, this is the father of Samson, said to his wife after he had seen the angel of the Lord announcing Samson's birth, "We shall surely die." Is he saying we're going to dying? We will die. Are we going to go through two deaths, a spiritual death and a physical death? No, he is not. First Samuel fourteen thirty nine. For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. This is Saul talking about the fact that uh, he was swearing an oath that even if Jonathan was the one who was discovered to be unfaithful, he would certainly die. 2 Samuel 12:14. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also, this is the child that was born to uh, David as a result of his uh, affair with Bathsheba, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. It's not talking about two different deaths, spiritual death and physical death. It's talking about the certainty of the infant's death. Jeremiah 26, 8. When Jeremiah finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, the priests and the prophets, and all the people seized him. They didn't like Jeremiah. People usually don't like people, prophets who speak the truth. Saying, you must die. Same phraseology. Are they saying, dying you will die? Are they saying, Jeremiah, you're going to go through two deaths, a spiritual death and a physical death? 
No, they're not. Just talking about the certainty of the death. So what we learn from looking at Genesis 2.17 is that God is saying that something specific and definite and certain is going to occur the instant. That's the phrase, in the day, that's really Hebrew idiom for the instant that this happens. For in the instant that you eat from the tree, you will certainly die. Now, we know that what happened when Adam ate from the fruit of the tree, that he did not die physically. He did not die physically for another 930 years. So the only thing we can suppose is that since God does not lie, because God is absolute truth, he is veracity, and he cannot lie, then God must have indicated something other than physical death by the mandate in Genesis 2.17. What he indicated was spiritual death, and we see that exemplified for us beginning in the next chapter in verse 7. After they ate, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were open. This is a reference to their knowledge. Usually eyes are used as a metaphor for seeing or knowing. In fact, the Hebrew word ra'ah, which means to see, can also mean to know. Paul uses the same imagery in Ephesians 1, I think it's about verse 16, where he talks about opening the eyes of our soul. The eyes of both of them were open. In other words, there was something they saw now. They had an experience with sin, and they knew evil personally and experientially and empirically. And they knew that they were naked, vulnerable, exposed. And so now they have a major problem, and they try to solve it on their own. That's the essence of spiritual death, is we're separated from God, and we think that we can solve our problems on our own apart from Him. So they get into uh, this... the Uh, procedure of solving the problems with their own technique of making garments for themselves. Then in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. Now the tense of the verb indicates this was something that God normally did, that God on a day-to-day basis had a relationship with Adam and the woman in the garden. He would come and he would teach them uh, all kinds of different things about himself and about uh, various things about the cre- creation, and he was uh, involved with them intimately, and so this was not something that was unusual. But this time something different took place. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. They hide. Why? Because they know that something has happened in terms of their makeup and their ability to relate to the Lord. They hide. Now, notice why they hide. God asks them this in verse 10. God says, where are you? Not that he's not omniscient, but by asking the question, he's emphasizing to the man that he is not where he has normally been, and he needs to make an explanation of his behavior. Verse 10, and he, the man, said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He was afraid. This is the, I think, fear, mental attitude sins, are the core disposition of the sin nature. I don't want to get into a lengthy sidetrack on this, but have you ever thought about the verse in 1 John chapter 4, which says, perfect love casts out fear? Most of us, when we think about love and its antonym, we think about hatred as being the opposite of love. Yet, Scripture presents 
love as the antonym to fear. Why? Because fear is the environment, the emotional environment presented by the sin nature at its very core, filled with all of its insecurities, and it is only in the security of God's love that the insecurity of our fallen fallenness is resolved. So in verse 10, you see that he, the first emotional sin is fear. Because I was naked, so I hid myself. So spiritual death, then, is separation from God, an inability to relate to God, and an inability to understand divine things. What has happened in terms of Adam's makeup is that he has lost the function of something God gave him at creation. When man was created, he was composed of three parts. A physical body, a human soul and a human spirit. Together, the soul and the spirit make up the immaterial part of man. The soul has specific functions. It is the seat of our self-consciousness, our mentality, where we think, where we reason, our emotions, where we respond to events, our conscience, where we store our norms and standards, and our volition, where we make choices, where we decide whether or not to obey God, whether or not we want to have a relationship with God. The human spirit fits like a hand in a glove with the soul and enables these aspects of the soul to have a relationship with God. Now, hold your place here in Genesis chapter 3. And let's go to a New Testament passage to understand a couple of dynamics here that are going on. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Just stick a pen in your... Hold a place there in Genesis 3. We'll be back there momentarily. We read in verse 14... Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot, it's a very strong statement in the Greek, made dunamis, he is not able to comprehend or understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now, if you notice, there is a, the last spiritually is lowercase, indicating that that is referring not to the Holy Spirit, but the human spirit. Now, why do I say that? Because this seems to be stating a universal principle that is true, that would be true both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, believers did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. They were not taught by the Holy Spirit. That was something Jesus introduced in the Upper Room Discourse in John chapter 14, that God the Holy Spirit would come and he would teach them all things and illuminate their minds. And it's further developed in John chapter 16. So here it, indic- it would indicate that it's not the Holy Spirit because if this was the- they are appraised by the Holy Spirit, then nobody in the Old Testament time could have understood any doctrine. So it has to be other than the Holy Spirit, so therefore it must be lowercase 
human spirit. Make that lowercase there. Human spirit. Now, the interesting word is the third word in the English, natural. In the Greek, it's not natural at all. It looks like this. P-S-U-C-H-I-K-O-S. Sukikos, from the Greek word suke, meaning soul. It's an adjective, so it is the soulish man. The soulish man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually appraised. In other words, all he has is a human soul. He doesn't have a human spirit. Now, leaving that passage, let's go to one verse prior to, a couple of verses prior to Revelation. Go to Jude. Turn with me to Jude, and we will look at um, turn down, let's see here. It's a bad translation here, so I'm having trouble finding it. Um, verse 19, Jude, verse 19. Pick up the context in verse 17. Jude says, But you, beloved, you, second person plural, refers to believers. They are further defined as beloved. That's a term for believers only. Ought to remember the words that were spoken, this would be a warning, beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time, that's a technical phrase describing the various trends of the church age. It's not talking about just at the end of the church age, but various trends that will take place during the church age. There shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. And the term there is asabion, which refers to unbelievers. This is not talking about believers in verses 18 and 19. Further, they're defined in verse 19, these are the ones who cause divisions. It's a warning that there will be unsaved people who get involved in local churches and they cause divisiveness because they're operating on a false standard called cosmic, uh, called cosmic thinking. But that's not what he says in the next phrase. Now, it looks to you in your English. You're using your New American Standard. It says worldly-minded. Guess what? It doesn't say that in Greek. It says Sukikos. Now, we've just seen from 1 Corinthians 2.14 that Sukikos means soulish. It doesn't mean worldly-minded. It's a horrible translation. The word for world is cosmos, cosmic. So it's talking about the, the core problem, which is they are Sukikos. They are soulish. And then to make sure we understand what soulish means, it uses a very clear appositional phrase to describe it, translated devoid of the spirit, but what happens is the translators made an interpretive decision there, bad interpretation, and they translated that spirit there with a capital S for Holy Spirit. Now, the Greek doesn't have capitals, uppercase or lowercase. It says may echon pneumaton, which means not having or not possessing, from the Greek echo, not possessing spirit. 
So the emphasis there, you have to ask, well, what's this talking about? Is that Holy Spirit or human spirit? Well, of course, so many people, as soon as they see the word spirit, they immediately assume it's the Holy Spirit, and they don't think through precisely a controlling passage like 1 Corinthians 2.14, which makes it clear that sukikos is related to not having something, not having a human spirit. It's not merely that it's not functional. With Adam, it became not functional. But when his descendants were born, they're just born without it. They only have a physical body and a human soul. And what happens at regeneration is God the Holy Spirit simultaneously creates and imparts to the believer a new human spirit. And he moves from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And the technical term for that is regeneration and we are born again and are given new life. Incidentally, at that instant, God the Father imparts to, or imputes to the human spirit eternal life so that we have God's very own life. Jesus Christ said, My life I give to them so that we have the same life He has, an eternal quality of life that can never be taken away. That's just one reason among many for eternal security. If you understand the vast complexity of what God did in saving us, not only at the cross, but also in terms of what happens at the instant of our salvation, it's just absurd to think that that is reversible, that somehow that can be taken away from us. So what we see from comparing these passages is that the penalty for sin is spiritual death, but that did not stop with just man. Think about this. It's not just that mankind, the human race, is now devoid of a human spirit and incapable of having a relationship with God. There is much more to it than that. So turn back with me. I told you, warned you not to lose your place. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3, and let's examine what is called the curse. This is the, the curse. Now, the curse is not the penalty. The penalty was what? Spiritual death. What's outlined in the curse is the consequences of that spiritual death. And what we discover is that the penalty for sin was spiritual death for mankind, but this reverberated throughout the entire creation. It reverberates throughout the entire universe. It's not just that Adam and the woman now have a problem in understanding and relating to God, but that there is a radical transformation that takes place throughout creation, throughout the universe. We see this in the first couple of verses. Genesis 3.13, Then the Lord God said uh, to the, to the uh, woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. See, they start passing the buck and avoiding responsibility. It didn't take the human race long to learn how to try to avoid responsibility for one's own decisions and actions. It's not my fault, it's the serpent's fault. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, now there are consequences to man's failure that are going to affect you. Because you have done this, cursed are you, notice the phrase, more than all the cattle. That is a comparative adjective. That does not mean that the serpent is cursed and the cattle aren't. 
it means that the curse upon the cattle is going to be more catastrophic. I mean, the curse upon the serpent is going to be more extreme and catastrophic than the curse upon the cattle. But it means there is a curse upon the cattle, and literally it's the beast of the field. That includes all animal kingdom. So that there is going to be an extra dimension to the curse on the serpent that goes beyond the dimension of the physical consequences to all of the animals. Think about that. God created all the animals in the garden, and they were gramnivorous. They were herbivores. That means they only ate grass. They didn't eat meat. There were no meat eaters. There was no Tyrannosaurus rex in the garden. Now, there was a Tyrannosaurus, but you didn't have the fall yet, so he's not the horrible, carnivorous, aggressive creature you see portrayed in all of the different pictures. So you have the entire animal kingdom. You have the lion, who is not carnivorous. You have tigers, who are not carnivorous. You have all kinds of various animals uh, that are uh, scavengers, and they're not carnivorous. They're, they're all grass eaters. They're all vegetarian. Even man's a vegetarian. But what happens is a result of the fall. All of a sudden, they become meat eaters. There is now voraciousness among the animal kingdom in one animal against another. Well, to go from being a vegetarian to uh, or a herbivore to a carnivore, certain physiological, biological things have to take place. You can't tear and chew up meat with the kind of teeth that a deer has or that a cow has. You have to have sharp teeth that will rip and tear and cut. And so there's going to be a change in the dental structure. You think about the, uh, the digestive system, that the kind of digestive system a cow has in order to take care of eating grass is vastly different from that of a meat eater. And so there is a change. The uh, structure of the gastrointestinal system in the animal kingdom. You have the development now from a, what was a nice, cuddly, uh, probably uh, attractive fish to a great white shark, barracuda. All of these went through a radical transformation, all as a result of Adam's bad decision. Now, that's not spiritual death, that's the penalty, that's the judicial punishment for sin. But all of this other reverberates throughout the physical world and is the consequence of sin. Of course, the serpent got changed. He did walk upright and now has to crawl on his guts. Genesis 3.16, this affects man physically, especially the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply. And incidentally, that's also a Cal infinitive perfect with a... Uh, Cal infinitive absolute, which shows intensification and certainty. I will multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now the point is that obviously she was designed to have children prior to the fall. Before the fall, God mandated the man and woman to be fruitful and multiply. And if she couldn't be fruitful and multiply prior to the fall, then it's a meaningless command. So God gave a command, I think, that in grace God uh, kept that from happening until they passed or failed the test. 
but she had the potential to have children prior to the fall. But she did not have a monthly cycle. There was no pain involved. If she had had children prior to the fall, there would not have been pain. It would have been just a wonderful, glorious, painless experience. And the very fact that there is the monthly cycle, which produces blood, incidentally, you've got to follow this through the Scriptures because you get into the Levitical sacrifices and it is during that monthly cycle that the woman is ceremonially unclean and cannot go into the tabernacle or the temple. Why? Because the blood is significant of the curse and it's a reminder of the fact that sin separates man from God. All of those things are representative. So you see that Ladies, you have a problem, and you can blame it on Eve or Adam, whatever you choose. But you see, your biology changed because of the sin. It doesn't just have a physical dimension. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, husbands take note, And have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So now the ground becomes cursed. There's a physical dimension, consequence to Adam's spiritual failure. So that uh, every spring we have to go go out and put out all the weed killer and we fight the dandelions and the crabgrass and everything else. And we get out in our gardens and we have to weed it all the time because of this. See, there was work prior to the fall. Now, I know that that amazes some of you, but God gave man responsibility prior to the fall to take care of the garden. But it was a pleasant experience. It was wonderful. There was no opposition from nature. It was wonderful. And he produced crops, the the like of which we can't even imagine. The fertility was incredible. And he just hardly had to do anything to produce phenomenal results. But now there is antagonism between man and the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you shall eat of it, all the days of your life. And then pay particular attention to verse 18 in light of what happens during Christ's physical torture. Both thorns and thistles, it will grow for you. Now, what happened in his physical torture? They put a crown of thorns on his head. This represents the physical dimension of the consequences of sin. Not the judicial penalty, but the physical consequences of sin. And you should, he says, but thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So there is going to be a problem that results from sin that reverberates throughout the universe. All the created order, everything is not like it was when it was created. Therefore... When you go out and you analyze molecules and you analyze the various geological structures in in the world and you try to extrapolate back to creation, you can't get there. You can't come up with anything definite because something radical happened at the fall. I'm not even talking about what happens at the flood. Something so radical took place at the fall that we we can't push beyond that because the very structure of the universe was radically altered at the fall. So we can't get back to anything through science that would even guess at a clue to origins because the data has been altered and cursed. Just a side point.
Point number four, the entire universe, therefore, is affected by Adam's decision. Let's turn to a, New Test, a couple of New Testament passages here. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 outlines this as part of the results of sanctification. Remember, and we saw this in our study of Romans 6 through 8, that the subject of Romans 6 through 8 is the results of justification, that is, the spiritual life of the believer. So Paul then, after concluding his discussion on the spiritual life, begins to deal with its consequences, not only for the consequences of justification, not only for phase two, the spiritual life, but also phase three in heaven. Look at what he says in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings, that is, all of the physical sufferings and torment and pain and misery that we go through right now, the sufferings of this present time, whatever the disasters may be, whatever the calamities may be, financial, health, weather-related, whatever it might be, military disasters, political disasters, whatever it might be, personal calamity, marital failure, whatever it is, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And the point that he's making in terms of his argument is that you may suffer all kinds of things living in this world related to spiritual growth, but when you compare that to what you're going to get out of it in terms of eternity, then there's no comparison and it will fade away. Four, explanation, verse 19, the anxious longing of what? He, anthrop- you've got an anthropomorphism here for, the, for nature, for the creation. For the anxious longing of the creation, that is the physical world, the physical universe has a longing that's suffering. It awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, this is what takes place when the church-age believers, sons of God is a technical term here for church-age believers, when we return in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ at the second advent. See, all church-age believers will be raptured prior to the tribulation. We spend seven years in heaven, judgment seat of Christ for rewards, and then we return with the Lord Jesus Christ just prior to to the complete destruction of the human race at the battle of Armageddon, and we return with him in glory to establish the millennial messianic kingdom. uh, That is the revealing of the sons of God. So that's our time period. Four, further explanation. For the creation was subjected. Notice it's a passive verb here that the creation did not subject itself. It was subjected. It was Adam's decision that caused the subjugation of the natural world. It was subjected to futility, matayotes, emptiness, vanity, futility. It is unable to achieve its original design and purpose. Not of its own will. I want to make sure you get the point that it is not of its own will, that it was something that it received as a result of the decision of someone else. Not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free. Now, there is an interesting concept. Set free. This relates to the doctrine of redemption. Now, normally when we talk about redemption, we talk about the payment price of Christ on the cross for sin. But there are, because Christ paid the penalty for sin, there is the setting free. See, the whole meaning of the concept of redemption is not just the payment of a price, 
but to set the slave free. It's the picture of the slave market of sin. But not only has man been enslaved, but all of creation has become uh, subjected to the consequence of sin. So redemption, precisely relating to the sin penalty, is one thing, but its consequence is such that not only is man set free spiritually, but the entire creation is set free at the time of Christ's return at the second coming. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Into Notice the word corruption. We'll come back and look at that in one more passage in just a minute. Slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the creation is not set free until Jesus Christ returns. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So this is the point of Romans chapter 8, that the entire universe is affected by Adam's decision and that this curse is rolled back or reversed at the second coming. Now, this leads us to point 5. Redemption means to purchase or to set free. So here it has a broader meaning than simply paying the price for sin, but it's focusing on the ultimate result of that payment, a physical dimension that reverberates throughout the created realm. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is the chapter, uh, benchmark chapter in Scripture on resurrection. Resurrection is not a spiritual concept. It is a physical concept. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we're talking about physical bodily resurrection. When John and Peter got to the tomb, they looked inside and ran inside, and there was no body there. No physical body was there. It was gone. It is a transformation the corrupt took on incorruption. It is not just that Jesus had some sort of spiritual uh, reappearance somewhere, but his physical body, the molecules, structure of his former body were regenerated into a new incorrupt body. Notice how this begins, verse 20, his argument. For now Christ has been raised from the dead. We're talking about physical death here. The first fruits of those who are asleep, that is a euphemism for believers who have who are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. For since by a man came death. See, it's talking about for by a man came death. There's no no verb in the original Greek. For since by a man death. That's talking about physical death as a consequence to sin. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. Now what are we talking about here, folks? I want to make this real clear because I always hear somebody come along and, and really abuse this passage. This is not talking about spiritual death here because we're not talking about spiritual resurrection. This is talking about physical death. Because the subject is resurrection. For as in Adam all die. Physical death is a result of being in Adam. That means, this is just an aside, a free point, that if anything dies, anything dies. Remember, we've already seen that the whole, that, that this whole death thing comes from Adam and reverberates through our creation. If you have anything die, then Death is not the result of sin, either physical death or spiritual death. 
Therefore, if you have one fossil developed prior to Genesis 3, then you've destroyed the Bible. Now, see, some people want to come along and they want to have fossils were formed at some other point, gap between Genesis 1, 1, 1, 2, whatever it might be. But you have one fossil. A fossil is formed because a creature died. And if you have death prior to Genesis 3, then, and that's all of evolution has death prior to, to man, then death is not the result of sin, and Jesus doesn't need to die on the cross. And that's why the whole evolutionary scheme or any compromise with it is a direct satanic assault on the necessity of the cross. That's why it's important. That's why we battle over origins. is because it is at root a theological issue, not a science issue. For since by a man came death, by a man also came what? The resurrection of the dead. Obviously we're talking physical death here. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Now skip down with me to verse uh, 33. Do, uh, no, let's go a little further. Verse 35. How someone, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You see, there is a physical dimension to the cross. The spiritual penalty is paid with physical consequences. The physical consequences are that we can be resurrected physically and the earth can be redeemed physically back to its original condition. What kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, blah, blah, blah. He goes on. I just want to skip down because it's a lengthy discussion. And we get down to... Verse, um, uh, let's go to verse 46, uh, uh, 47. The first man is from the, uh, the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so are also those who are heavenly. And the point that he is making is that corruption, the corrupt fallen body cannot put on in corruption. And that is, Further developed in verse 51, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Why do we have to be changed? Because the physical dimension needs to be worked out in terms of redemption. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, this is at the rapture, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. There's our word. I mentioned corrupt earlier. This is the opposite. It's incorrupt. The dead will be raised incorruptible or imperishable, and we shall all be changed, for this perishable or this corrupt must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So physical resurrection and transformation of the resurrection body is a consequence of Christ's payment on the cross. That is why when Christ goes to the cross, there is both a physical suffering dimension and a physical death dimension and a physical resurrection because one, the physical is the consequence of the spiritual. So, point number six, the physical dimension of the curse is reversed at the second coming. It's reversed at the second coming and we see this in Isaiah chapter 11 Verse 4, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4 and following, talking about the coming of the Messiah. But with righteousness he will judge the poor. This is the characteristics of the Messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom. 
With righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. There will be perfect justice, perfect government. I know you just think that's fantasy, but... When the Lord comes, because the head executive will be perfect, there will be perfect justice. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Notice, even in the millennial kingdom, there will be uh, violence towards the wicked. Isaiah 11.5, Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. That means that his rule will, it's an image that his rule will be characterized by righteousness and faithfulness. And notice this, it has a physical dimension. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young, and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. That's the whole group. He's going to have a herd. And in that herd, there's going to be wolves, and lambs, and leopards, and calves, and lions, and they're all going to be living together in perfect harmony. And the lion is not going to be looking over at the lamb, thinking, hmm... Dinner. So once again, there will be what? A reversal of the curse. There will be a change in their dental structure. There will be a change in their gastrointestinal system. And they will all live together in harmony. Verse 7, And also the cow and the bear will graze together. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. Verse 8, And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. So your little babies can go out and go rattlesnake hunting in Sweetwater, Texas, during the great rattlesnake roundup and not have to worry about any, and you can't, you won't have to worry about anything. Verse 9, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So what we see here is that there will be a reversal of all of the consequential damage from sin in the millennial kingdom. Point seven. So the physical suffering of Christ included the physical death of Christ, and all of this relates to the consequences of sin, but not the judicial penalty of sin. Christ's spiritual death on the cross, when he is separated judicially from God the Father during those three hours on the cross, paid the penalty for sin. Christ's physical suffering showed that he conquered the physical consequences of sin. This is the point at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 when we read, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the other application is that Christ's physical suffering was so intense and so extreme that he demonstrated that under the power of God the Holy Spirit and the application of Bible doctrine, that the believer could overcome any adversity in life. He is our pioneer. Not only did he pay the penalty for our sins, but he demonstrated in his humanity that in reliance upon the filling of God the Holy Spirit plus Bible doctrine, you don't have one without the other, that man can handle any difficulty, any problem, any adversity in life. That God the Father in his omniscience knew every problem, every heartache, every trauma, every stress, every suffering we will ever encounter billions and billions of years ago, and he designed a plan that would include the provision to handle that based upon his grace, and Jesus Christ demonstrated that for us in his life, which included the dimension of physical suffering.
It is the spiritual death that lays the foundation and the consequences then reverberate through every other area of our life. And so this lays the groundwork for our spiritual life, that it is based on grace, not on works, based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross, not on who we are or what we have done. And it gives us confidence that no matter what we go through in life, no matter how overwhelming it may seem, we know that our Savior pioneered a spiritual life that he bequeathed to us at the resurrection that is ours for the rest of our life and into eternity, that we possess the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can be filled by the Holy Spirit, and that we have the completed canon of Scripture so that we lack nothing. The only issue is whether or not we are willing to trust God, whether or not we are willing to learn all of the provisions and power that God has given us, and willing to use it and apply it within the parameters of God's Word. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that you have given us such a great and magnificent salvation, that this is dependent not on who we are, what we have done, but on Christ and what he did on the cross. We have looked at just one aspect, one dimension of all that he went through on the cross, the physical suffering, and how that was, was a vital part of your plan for uh, recovering the original design for perfect environment, perfect creation, that we might ultimately fulfill uh, the destiny of mankind in Christ as the second Adam. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their salvation, that right now they would take the time to make that certain. All that you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You don't need to make a bargain with God. You don't need to reform your life. You don't need to join a church. You don't need to be baptized. You don't need to do anything else that has to do with human works. All the Scripture says you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you can do that right now, right where you sit, and nobody may ever know a thing. But all you need to do is put your trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Now, Father, we pray for for those who are believers here already that you would challenge us with what you have done, that we may be encouraged and strengthened, and that it may uh, motivate us towards greater obedience to utilize all that you have provided for us, all the spiritual assets in our unique spiritual life, that we might continue to advance to maturity, that you might be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.